All right. Well, thank you everyone for coming out tonight. Uh, my goal really is to provide some context for what is going on in Hong Kong today, especially now that the extradition, anti-extradition protests have entered its sixth month of unrest. Many people who follow the protests in the media believe that this is a form of democracy in its truest form. But without providing the basic historical understanding of Hong Kong and the relationship between China and the global world, all that the mainstream media has done is provide a narrative, one that is neither objective or without motive. So as a result, people draw conclusions that have dangerous implications despite good intentions. And today I will be providing an analysis that looks at the history of Hong Kong, um, the social conditions that led to this movement and the implications of war between two global powers. So how did the anti-extradition bill protests begin. In February of 2018, a 19-year-old man from Hong Kong murdered his pregnant 20-year-old girlfriend in a hotel in Taiwan. He returned back to Hong Kong where he confessed to the murder. Um, and the problem here is that Hong Kong does not have an extradition treaty with Taiwan. And because Hong Kong is officially governed by China under one country, two systems, the People's Republic of China does not formally recognize Taiwan as a which is its own complicated thing, has its long history, which I'm not going to get into today. But technically, the crime committed happened on Chinese territory. But since there is no extradition treaty in place, there is no way uh, to try the murderer for his crime. So the solution then was to establish an extradition agreement between Hong Kong and China. The protesters seized on this opportunity to claim that this was an encroachment of Chinese takeover of Hong Kong sovereignty and an opening for the People's Republic of China to abuse its power over Hong Kong. This is the so-called pro-democracy, pro-independence camp that used this extradition bill as a rallying cry to demand independence and secession from China. And some speculate that the extradition bill would close a loophole that many wealthy oligarchs have enjoyed um, by going to Hong Kong, who otherwise uh, would be a target of China's anti-corruption campaign. So what does the bill actually say? The extradition bill outlines that suspected criminals could only be extradited if the crime falls under a list of 37 types of offenses and offenses that carry a sentence of a maximum of at least seven years. And this actually was increased from the formally proposed three as a way to reach a compromise with the protesters. And these offenses include things such as rape, murder, kidnapping, exploitation and abuse of children, genocide, offenses related to women and girls, and offenses against laws around firearms and explosives. And this is kind of key. Um, the Hong Kong courts would have the final say of extradition, not Beijing. So for those who were concerned about the extradition bill being able to silence or intimidate political dissenters, if you read the bill, there's not one crime on that list that explicitly states political dissenting, subversion, or organizing against the government as a crime that they could be extradited for. And since the protest began, Chief Executive Terry Lam has tried to make concessions to the demands of the protesters, further restricting the bill, um, without a lot of success. And the bill was suspended in July, which would have then expired by the end of the year. But this month, actually, Chief Executive Lamb declared the bill dead. 
It is also noteworthy that Hong Kong currently has extradition pacts with over 20 different countries, including its former colonizer, the United Kingdom, as well as the United States. So this right here shows that all of the countries that are highlighted in blue are countries that Hong Kong has extradition pacts with. And all of the yellow are the countries that have extradition pacts with China. And the movement supposedly, you know, so anyway, I say this all to say that we can really only conclude that the movement that was sparked by this extradition bill has really little to do with the actual bill. Uh, but it is an inherently anti-China movement with different causes and motivations. And now that the bill is officially dead, the family of the woman who was murdered cannot get justice for her murderer, a man who is now walking free in the wake of this unrest. So the 2019 anti-extradition protests follow a tradition of so-called pro-democracy pro protests, such as the 2014 Umbrella Revolution, I think, Many folks have seen that on the news and the 2012 anti-national education protests. And both claim that the People's Republic of China was attempting to take over and brainwash citizens of Hong Kong. A modern narrative of Hong Kong begins in 1997, where Hong Kong was officially handed over from its British colonizer of 150 years to the People's Republic of China. So therein lies a discussion that is absent of the Hong Kong people. And the media likes to portray this handover as if Hong Kong were Hong Kong people were mere pawns between two so-called colonizers. And I just want to be clear here that only one of these countries is the colonizer, and that's the British. <laughs> So there is a false presumption underlying all of the corporate media uh, reports that Hong Kong is separate from China um, and always has been. Well, we know that this isn't true, and I'm going to kind of talk about how Hong Kong became a colony in the first place. So in 1839, after a series of trade negotiations between China, uh, which was then ruled by the Qing Dynasty and the British, uh, where China refused to import opium, the British decided to wage what was known as the first opium war against China. Um, this reminds me a lot of just what Natalie was talking about, right? These kind of trade negotiations. And so China uh, was a resource, resource rich country that did not need to trade for survival because it has very resource rich, right? Very diverse land. Um, to the British, this meant that a fifth of the world's population was an untapped market for profit. And in an era of Western imperialism, the British, along with other European countries, would do anything in its power to open China up and to be looted and ravaged for the accumulation of profit. So the defeat of China in the Opium Wars was a significant turn in Chinese history because it plunged China into a semi-colonial state with key ports controlled by five to seven different European powers, invasions and disputes by other nations such as Japan and Russia, and ultimately led to the deterioration and the overthrow of the Qing government. And one of those concessions was ceding Chinese territory of Hong Kong to the United Kingdom. And so this marked the beginning of a century of humiliation, a memory that runs deep in the Chinese narrative and discourse, and it was the humiliation of being once a society that produced 30% of the world's GDP, seven times the GDP of Great Britain at the time of the Opium Wars, too severe underdevelopment. 
um, and colonialism. So the geographic land that makes up Hong Kong falls within the Guangzhou province of China under uh, until the British took these territories. So this is Guangzhou province, this large triangle. Um, and on this flat side, there's a red circle and that's Hong Kong right there. So it's, it's within that province. So what did British colonialism look like, right? No one really talks about what British colonial lo looks like and what that meant for Hong Kong people. So under British rule, it was effectively a white settler city operating under an apartheid-like system. Chinese folks made up of the majority of the Hong Kong population, obviously it was 98% uh, Chinese and they were subjected to severe poverty. The Chinese were expected to abide by curfew laws. And if any Chinese person were to violate any arbitrary law or ordinance, um, they would be subjected to public beatings and, and public whipping. And when I was reading through the history of this, it reminded me a lot of the way Chinese people were treated in America during the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was kind of the same type of brutality. The official language of Hong Kong was English up until 1970, until the 1970s. And because Chinese people, unless you were wealthy, um, you were afforded an education to learn English, you otherwise did not speak English or understand it. And this meant that not only could you not understand any of the laws or regulations that were imposed on them, uh, but they could not participate in the political system, even if they tried. And the governor of Hong Kong was appointed by the British uh, government until 1985, where elections were introduced. I think that this was deliberate. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 the mere barring of political participation of the Chinese majority. And in Hong Kong, there were white-only enclaves all throughout Hong Kong, which is still very visible today if you ever visit. There are parts of Hong Kong that are, are very dominated by European people. And meanwhile, Chinese folks lived in illegally subdivided, unsanitary, dense conditions. And during colonial times, the anti-imperialist movement in Hong Kong against the British sought inspiration from their communist brothers and sisters in China. And they were waging the same fight on both sides of the border to end colonialism in China towards reunification. So to bring this back to 1997, to say that the, the history of Hong Kong started in 97 when the handover happened without any context that Hong Kong was, with the false context that Hong Kong was doomed because it is now governed by an authoritarian government in China is not only ahistorical, but it is disingenuous and misleading. Modern history of Hong Kong begins when the people of Hong Kong were subjected to racist British colonialism and 1997 signaled an end to those 150 brutal years. So Western media has done a very good job of depicting a surface level one-sided understanding of the situation in Hong Kong, right? We've seen countless of headlines conveying the inspirational outpouring of young people into the streets, you know, standing up for all for their beliefs. And there, that there is broad consensus around these issues concerning independence that continues to be ignored by the People's Republic of China. But what are their demands? What are the demands of the protesters and what do they represent? A study which was conducted by the Chinese University of Hong Kong, uh, which surveyed over 6,000 protesters in the pro-democracy camp found that the majority of the protesters range 
between the ages of 20 to 30. Why is this significant, right? This is significant because that means many of the people who are protesting were either born after the handover or were very young children when the handover happened. Majority are college educated and are self-identified as middle class as opposed to lower class. And many were still concerned about the general public's attitudes toward the movement. So um, I think that this is very significant because it directly contradicts the mainstream narrative that everyone is on the same side about independence in China or in Hong Kong. Uh, many also politically identify as moderate Democrats, localists, or centrists. And I want to talk about the ideology of localism for a little bit, because I think um, it's, it's important to unpack. So localism is a political ideology that centers around preserving culture and identity of a region. It is a movement that attempts to define and preserve the Hong Kong identity, but as a result, takes on a right-wing libertarian trajectory and is hyper-reactionary and has transcended into a xenophobia, especially against mainlanders. And, and the word mainlander, um, if folks don't know, is used to describe Chinese people who are from China. So this is an ad in China, or I keep saying that, in Hong Kong, um, that says, are you willing to let Hong Kong spend a million dollars, Hong Kong dollars every 18 minutes on bringing up anchor babies? This is in Hong Kong. And if folks don't know what the term anchor babies means, it's a derogatory term to describe children of women who have children in a country for their citizenship, right? Um, I think that many folks in the, in the immigration movement has heard this used as, a, uh, as something that a lot of bigots use to describe immigrants here. So this is also consequently an ideology that is dominated by young people of the post-handover generation who did not grow, grow up under the influence of British colonialism. And so let me talk about something that hasn't really been expressed in the protests themselves, but to talk about the conditions that the younger generation is facing right now. So this younger generation, much like younger generations all across the world who bear the brunt of the inequalities of capitalism, inherited a society with historical legacies as a result of colonialism and capitalism. In Hong Kong, one in six people live below the poverty line. The housing crisis is one of the worst in the entire world. It is worse than San Francisco, worse than Los Angeles, and worse than New York. And many young people cannot find decent jobs despite being highly educated. So one of the popular slogans of the protests are Hong Kong is not China which is driving home the point that this is a deliberately political identity, even though ethnically both are in large part the same. So both Hong Kong and China are 92% Han Chinese ethnic majority. And I just want to note in this picture that there's a guy here holding a British flag, uh, which is insulting for anyone who's lived under colonialism. In 2007, the Commission on Poverty, appointed by chief executive at the time, uh, was established and for the first time in 2009, for the first time, Hong Kong measured poverty as a way to inform policy de uh, decisions. The initial reports found that 20% of Hong Kong population was impoverished. And in fact, the elderly population poverty rate was 30%. So that's a lot. <laughs> um, recognizing the economic situation, the Hong Kong government implemented social programs such as the comprehensive social security assistance, old age living allowance, 
and the low income working families allowance. And since these policy interventions, overall poverty rate has dropped to 14.7%, lifting 370,000 people above the poverty line. And the purpose of raising this really is to make a point that this was possible under one country, two systems, where Hong Kong has been able to pursue policy changes that at least attempt to lift people out of poverty. Uh, this has never happened under British colonialism. Also, those who have the worst living conditions, who are the elderly, are, not, are very not likely participating in these pro-democracy protests. And as I mentioned many before, a lot of the pro-democracy protesters are much younger and identify as middle class. So I point all of these things out to point out the class character of the protesters, one that does not necessarily represent the most pressing issues facing Hong Kong people today. So while there's no singular organization that is playing a leading role, um, the so-called leaderless movement, there are localist groups like Demosisto and its leaders, Joshua Wong and Nathan Law, uh, have been very supportive, vocally so, uh, supportive of these protests. And prominent figures of the broader pro-democracy movement, such as Nathan Law, um, has worked very closely with the CIA-funded National Endowment for Democracy. And Joshua Wong has been close allies with notorious right-winger Marco Rubio. Rubio was nominated, uh, nominated Joshua Wong for the Nobel Peace Prize here in the U.S. <laughs> I mean, I know. <laughs> Joshua has also embarked on a very interesting international tour, which I think will be fascinating for many of you, and I'm going to explain that a little bit further. So Joshua, he's 22 years old. He's a 22-year-old activist who was one of the lead organizers of the 2014 Umbrella Revolution. And Joshua has openly called for support from the U.S., Taiwan, and Germany um, for these protests. This week, Joshua Wong visited Germany and met with German Minister of Foreign Affairs, Heiko Maas, to discuss the situation in Hong Kong. And even though Wong couldn't sit down with Angela Merkel, he actually wrote a letter to her uh, where he wrote, you know, he specifically cites the movement to overthrow the communist government in East Germany, and something that's something that he hopes to see in Hong Kong. He specifically states, quote, if we are now in a new Cold War, Hong Kong is the new Berlin, end quote. In, yeah, I know. In an interview with DW News, a German-English language news source, Joshua discussed the recent march that took place onto the U.S. consulate in Hong Kong as he's about to meet with um, with the U.S. And I don't know if that's already happened um, or if it's coming up, but it's, it's scheduled to happen. And the purpose of this march onto the U.S. consulate was to call for Washington's support to pass the bipartisan Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which states that the U.S. will conduct annual assessments about whether or not Hong Kong is sufficiently autonomous from the People's Republic of China. Among the sponsors of this bill is, you guessed it, Marco Rubio. Um, just so that comrades are, are clear, Marco Rubio is not a defender of human rights or democracy. And not only has Marco Rubio vocally advocated for military intervention in Venezuela, but in doing so, he posted a horrific picture on Twitter of the lynching and killing of Libya's former leader Gaddafi, threatening that if Nicolas Maduro, president of Venezuela, did not comply with U.S. demands that this could be your fate. Imagine if a country 
threatened the U.S. president like that, what would happen? <laughs> so in his DW interview, Joshua Wong claims that the chief executive, Carrie Lam, has repeatedly refused to meet with the opposition leaders, but then goes on to deflect the interviewer who mentions that in declaring the extradition bill dead, Carrie Lam states that if the protesters are willing to move forward with peace in Hong Kong, then she is willing to engage directly with the opposition. He also says that despite the outcome of the bill, protesters now seek universal suffrage to directly elect their own leaders. He claims that Carrie Lam is a handpicked puppet from Beijing. And remember, Hong Kong people did not even have an electoral system until the 80s. And just to kind of talk about the election system in Hong Kong a little bit, the chief executive is elected by an election committee of 1,200 people representing over 38 sectors um, across Hong Kong, some of which are geographically voted in um, by you know, direct elections. Each candidate must be voted at 50% or more by the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, which is a legislative body of the People's Republic of China. And so when the protesters like Wang say that the candidate is handpicked by the People's Republic of China, that's what he means. Um, that it needs to go through the, the National People's Congress before you can actually vote on these nominees. <clears throat> Wong is appealing to the U.S. to help with this quest for universal suffrage, which is uh, interesting, right? Because when we consider the, our electoral system in the United States, one would question, why would Joshua Wong look to the, the United States as a model for universal suffrage? We saw how Bernie Sanders was robbed of his Democratic nomination in 2016, even though he won many primaries, to only to be handed over to Hillary Clinton. And several other leaders of the pro-democracy movement, such as Nathan Law, uh, this is actually directly on their website of him giving a talk uh, for the National Endowment of Democracy. Um, and to kind of talk about what the National Endowment for Democracy is, it was created under the Reagan administration and is a taxpayer-funded CIA front organization that employs students and activists from all around the world to conduct regime change efforts. <laughs> One of the co-founders, Alan Weinstein, states, quote, that what we, the NED, do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA. Openly admitting that this is, you know, this is something that they used to do openly, right? Um, but as we all know, with all the struggles around the world, overt regime change efforts went out of fashion. It's, it's unacceptable now. And so instead, covert forms of sowing political agendas favorable to U.S. foreign policy was a way to go. And the National Endowment for Democracy is a bipartisan organization supported both by the Republicans and the Democrats, yet the Democrats have been crying wolf about so-called Russian interference into our elections when the U.S. government has a dedicated nonprofit to meddle in elections around the world. Something else that Joshua Wong continues to cite as a reason for continued protests is that there's rampant police brutality. And there have been numerous accounts of violence perpetrated by a radical faction of the opposition. And I say a radical faction because this actually is not representative of the majority of protesters in Hong Kong. Some of these uh, violent acts include throwing Molotov cocktails, damaging property, disrupting the MTR station, and even public beatings of journalists and either mainland Chinese people, Hong Kong people who are sympathetic to China, or just anyone who is against this upheaval. 
And most recently, they set fire to the central MTR station, which is at the heart of Hong Kong Island. And they, uh, in, in this video, there's a video um, that I'm not gonna show, but it shows these protesters digging up the pavement, laying down cardboard and lighting it on fire. So that it creates a fire barricade so that the cops can't go through. And this all happened without police interference. And these are regular occurrences that have taken place as early as July for almost every week for the past 2.5 months. And I just want to state that, like, there are a few people that I know who are living in Hong Kong right now, and their perception is that the cops are in over their heads. They don't really know what to do because they don't want to use force or violence. And as a result, the violent disruptions continue. Um, Rioters have also severely beaten policemen on several occasions without violent retaliations. And in all instances of intense confrontation, especially while the cops attempt to disperse rioters from beating civilians, they have had objects thrown at them by protesters, uh, water thrown at them, and even while armed, that the police, despite being injured in the process, did not resort to using any lethal weapons. In fact, there was one incident where an armed cop was cornered by a group of rioters where he finally pulled out his gun and his colleague ordered him to stop. And he said, these are our own people and we don't do that to our own people. And these are just a few instances that have been recorded and documented, but we don't hear about it in the mainstream media. So this is important context to understand that while the headlines preach that the people of Hong Kong are being brutally oppressed by the cops and they're standing up to the cops, all accounts show that this is a gross exaggeration. And in fact, the Hong Kong police have shown considerable disciplined amount of restraint amidst all of this chaos. And why would the mainstream media all of a sudden be sympathetic to victims of police brutality when we all know, we know all too well that corporate media treats victims of police brutality in the US as criminals? And many of us in the room who has been to any protests in the United States know that if any of these documented violence perpetrated on the streets of Hong Kong were to happen here, we'd be publicly harassed, pepper sprayed, uh, beaten, jailed, or shot. So there is an entirely opposite side of the protests that I want to talk about that have not been covered by the media, um, you know, and, and these are pro-China, uh, pro-China rallies, and they support the Hong Kong government. A poll from 2017, 2017 which is not that long ago, shows that more than 60% of Hong Kong citizens do not support the idea of independence in Hong Kong, and only 11% support independence. In fact, it was just reported uh, that Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, uh, they all have deleted hundreds of accounts that counter the mainstream narrative. Facebook and Twitter announced that it removed accounts that, quote, deliberately and specifically attempting to sow political discord in Hong Kong, including undermining the legitimacy and political positions of the protest movement on the ground, end quote. So what did you say that this is outright censorship? by Twitter, Facebook, you know, all these tech companies. Um, so the pro-China, pro-Hong Kong government protests have been able to mobilize upwards of 400,000 people. And while there haven't been surveys conducted among this camp of the gatherings, from the photos, the composition looks rather multi-generational, multi but noticeably more older 
then the pro-democracy camp. And there is a variability in general sentiments among the pro-China, pro-Hong Kong camp. Many are protesting because they want an end to the escalation of violence among the extreme right-wing elements of the pro-democracy camp. They view the police force as maintaining discipline while trying to keep things orderly. Many also oppose the idea of independence from China because they know that Hong Kong, the Hong Kong economy cannot survive without China. And if independence were achieved, Hong Kong would still need to do so in a way that would not tarnish the relationship with China. Like something like 70 to 80% of China's water and food, or Hong Kong's water and food is imported from China. Many also feel that the path towards reunification since 97 is a step towards rejoining with its rightful motherland in China, reconciling the damage done by colonialism. And finally, and most importantly, many feel that the issue about independence versus reunification is a justified debate. You know, for 150 years, Hong Kong has developed a path of, of development that's very uniquely different from China. However, these protesters say that this issue is a national matter, one between Hong Kong and China, and not for foreign meddling. The problem they see with the pro-democracy protests is not so much that they disagree with their views, but that they're capable of taking the bait of Western imperialists uh, to aid uh, them at the expense of Hong Kong's actual self-determination, one that is a matter for Hong Kong itself. We, we just went through the list of people who are meeting with foreign nationals, taking national endowment for democracy money, right? They're, they're taking the bait as we speak. And we see that this is literally happening right now, uh, you know, just this week. So um, there's so much more to say about Hong Kong. I mean, I could talk about Hong Kong all day, but this is just scratching the surface. And I want to wrap this up by tying it back to this final point, right? That there is a vested interest in the United States and its allies to destabilize China. We see this with the ongoing trade wars, one that has so far proved to fail on the U.S.'s part. China's One Belt, One Road initiative would be able to connect 71 countries by land and sea, covering 50% of the world's population. This project would allow the ability for economic cooperation and conduct diplomacy across these countries with China at the center. And this is major threat to US hegemony. So when we see politicians like Hillary Clinton, Marco Rubio, Mike Pence, Donald Trump, publicly speaking out in support of this, uh, in solidarity with these movements, we have to question their motives, right? When has their solidarity ever been for any of our movements here in the US? Never. Um, so we should take very seriously that anytime a country other than the U.S. is being attacked in mainstream media, this means that there is a foreign policy agenda behind it. Evidence from the recent U.S.-China relations shows that if China does not give in to U.S. interests, then the U.S. will wage war with China, launching us into a potentially catastrophic world war. Even most progressive figures such as, you know, from the Democratic Party, such as Ilham Omar and Bernie Sanders, has pledged support for these protests. Um, not maybe, I don't know, I mean, it's like you're pledging support for these protests, uh, knowingly aiding a foreign policy agenda to destabilize China. So the aims of the U.S. is to defeat China as a major global competitor and return it back to a colonial state. They're not really interested in China's development. They want to overthrow the Communist Party, and the consequences would be devastating for the Chinese population and for the global leftist movement. We saw this after the fall of the Soviet Union. 
Hong Kong is being used as a proxy for Western interests. And despite what's going on in Hong Kong, our role in the United States is to, is to vehemently oppose U.S. intervention in that region and all regions in the rest of the world. The overthrow of the Communist Party in China would mean a reversal of the 800 million people who were lifted out of poverty. The vast social programs and all of the major historic achievements China has been able to make over the past 70 years. We know that China is not a perfect society. But in the end, who loses if China were to be overthrown? The 1.4 billion people who inhabit China and the working class people of Hong Kong. Thank you.